If you're like me, you might hear estate planning and go, ugh, gross. You might think to yourself, I'm not sure why I'd bother with that. Estate planning is only for the uber rich. Tallgrass begs to differ. Tallgrass founding attorneys Laurel and Riley think everyone should have an estate plan. They know estate planning seems untouchable to a lot of folks, like something you have to do inside a stuffy law firm of Stuffy McLawyer Pants Esquire. But I promise you, Tallgrass is nothing like that. For one, they work out of their home so their clients can feel at home. They obsess, because they're nerds, over making clients feel like they belong and are supposed to be there. Also, their kids might make an appearance. They will take time to answer all of your questions, even the uncomfortable ones. They will work relentlessly to make sure your plan is exactly what you need to feel secure and at peace. So if you've been putting off planning for what's going to happen after you've gone, it's time for you to give Tallgrass a call at 918-770-8940 and start your plan today. Or visit their website at tallgrassestateplanning.com and schedule a free initial consultation. For free! It's right there on the website. And of course, there's more, because this is a podcast ad. If you tell them you're a Pot for Good listener, they're going to take 25% off their service fees. Just tell them Pot for Good sent you. Stop thinking estate planning isn't for you and give Tallgrass a call today at 918-770-8940 or on their website, which I'm not going to read out to you again. It's in our show notes. Thank you, Tallgrass. Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we learn from those doing good in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the world, why they care, what we can do, and most importantly, what you can do. Pod for Good is produced and edited by Rant9 Productions and can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy what we do here, please make sure to subscribe to Pod for Good anywhere you get your podcasts and share this episode on the social media. I am your chief philanthropod and class clown for justice number one. Jesse Ulrich. Now I'm your vice admiral philanthropod and class clown for justice, A, Chris Miller. And this episode, we are talking to Paul Slater and Ryan Tubbs from Billion Minds. We talked to Paul and Ryan about how my e- email inbox is insane, work-life integration through transforming behavior, and how t- technology sometimes makes easy things hard, like doors. We, we have mastered door technology. Why are we losing it? Get on a Tesla. Anyway, enjoy. We are very excited to have Paul and Ryan, the co-founders of Billion Minds, on the podcast today. Paul, hi. Hey, Jesse. Ryan, hello. Hey. Uh, I want our listeners to know, not that it's important, but Ryan is coming to us from the past in black and white, and it's just really fascinating for all of us. So if when you hear R- Ryan talk, just know that he's talking in, from a 40s film. So Yeah, it's an interesting new uh, feature. We like to call these uh, features not bugs uh, when you apply your noir filter accidentally. So for all you kids out there in TV land, <laughs> when you're using <laughs> your, uh, your podcast software, look for the feature. I, I think it's a, a filter you can use in TikTok pretty easily. Not that I understand TikTok, but uh, so Paul, Ryan, you guys can flip a coin uh, to who's going to explain this, but can you tell our audience what Billion Minds is? Sure, I'll, I'll take it. So we're a program that helps employees optimize their work in the context of their broader lives. 
Um, we do this through basically a 90 day individual transformation. And then we maintain that through, uh, ongoing support to maintain and enhance the gains that people have made. Um, our target is employees inside organizations, uh, that are doing unstructured and ambiguous work or people that have gone through some significant transition. So for example, somebody who's a new employee, somebody who's changed roles or somebody who's looking to move up inside an organization. And it's really designed to go after a broader and bigger problem that, that many of us in the world have these days, which is work and the rest of our lives are merging. And as that's happening, it's becoming really, really hard to do your best work. Um, and so that's been our, our mission ever since uh, we left Microsoft um, about a year and a half ago now. And, uh, and it's, an, it's an interesting one every day as we're learning more and more about the struggles that people have, particularly in this COVID world and, and, uh, and in a world where it's not even clear where we work, let alone when we work and who we work with. And I mean, so this 90-day program, mm -hmm. do you, is everyone who goes through it, is there like a curriculum you give them or is there like an examination period where you find out what the person's strengths and weaknesses are first? We would say it's more of an experience, right, Ryan? Yeah, it is. In fact, uh, the entire platform is built from the ground up based on uh, not just the research we've done, but more importantly, behavioral science and organizational change management. And so the reason why it's an experience at all is because experiences work. Uh, just giving somebody another productivity tool or app uh, is not going to fix the situation that we're in. What we're looking for is real, true yeah, behavioral change. Thank you. So what you're saying is there is no perfect app and I should stop looking. <laughs> cool. okay. Well, we're always right. big fans of experimentation, no but the problem is uh, at least one of the problems that we're seeing uh, so many people face is that um, they're making a lot of noble attempts to try to solve the problem. Um, but in many ways, they're looking in the wrong places. Um, it's not a, a purely a, a technology solution. It's about people. It's about process. It's about organization. It's about structure. Uh, and those are all things that uh, really underpin true habit formation. And so we have to look to the lessons of, of behavioral change for that. Uh, yeah. And also, I mean, if we are looking to actually instill uh, and embed a new set of behaviors that are appropriate for the time in which we live right now, then even just picking up a book and reading something probably isn't going to do it. Even attending an offsite at your workplace isn't going to accomplish it. And so we focus really, really heavily on what needs to happen during the course of those 90 days in order for the new set of habits to be maintained. And so it includes an app. It includes one-on-one um, -on -one coaching, for example. It includes educational materials. But all of these things are designed to work together to actually create the meaningful result, which is um, a change of behavior. On your website, you mentioned something that I thought is is a good job of uh, describing a current issue, which is that people thought they were going to work from home and ended up finding out they were really living at work. And now that that has expanded so broadly and continues to grow, are you seeing that that is exacerbating this issue? Yeah, not only is that exacerbating, but people are finding a whole bunch of different ways to to interpret that and explain it even to themselves. In addition to what you've just said, another thing that, that people are talking to us about is the fact that they can never really be fully engaged and motivated at the start of a day 
because they never actually disconnected from it the day before. And so what's happening as we've pulled away these, this structure and this period of time that, that was kind of enforced rest at the end of each day, when you finished work at five o'clock, you had a 16 hour break between five o'clock the previous day and 9am the next day, as that's gone, what's replaced it is kind of, kind of a continuous grind is the phrase that a lot of people use when they're describing it, um, whereby work, you're never off from work. And so you can never really switch back on and be truly engaged in it the next day. And no matter what type of work you're doing, that can be a challenge, but it's even more exacerbated when you're doing this kind of unstructured, ambiguous stuff. And I think one thing to me about that that's so interesting is that a lot of people tend to focus on the impact when they talk about the work-life balance, the impact on the life piece of it, that maybe people are not able to be as happy in their home life. What I think is interesting is that you're also talking about that that lack of balance, how significantly it impacts your ability to work as well. That's true. And it's, it, it's interesting you mentioned balance. Um, you know, Paul, we've been talking about this for some time. We actually are starting to believe it's not a balance challenge or that's not the, that's not the way that we should be thinking. We need to find new nomenclature. Um, it's about integration. Uh, and so we use the term work-life integration instead of work-life balance. Balance implies that you're able to separate those things and then divide your time accordingly. Um, we don't think that that's a realistic state now, just the, the, the pace that humans are operating, the way that we work and live. And so going back to your point, there's a cyclical nature to this. Um, you know, if, you're, if your life doesn't work, your work's not going to work. You know? And so that's, that's basically what we're saying is that if we can't get to the point where we have uh, good, effective days where we're focused on our, our well-being and we're, we're able to close the door effectively and work at the end of the day so we can focus on the other things that are important in our lives, then nobody's going to bring their best selves to work uh, anyway. And so we can't just look at work to solve work problems. We can't just look at your personal life and your hobbies and your side hustles to, to, to solve a work problem. You have to look at the whole life. Well, and so you talked about you talked about how like this is great for people like in transition. And I also think it like you, you, you both of you and me are entrepreneurs, right? We are start we have started a, a thing by ourselves or with a team. And those are very unstructured activities that most people are not trained for when they start doing them. Right? Most entrepreneurs have an idea, like I want to do this idea. But that idea might not have anything to do with running a business, but they also have to learn how to do that too. Yeah. Well, and yeah, actually you call up a couple of really, really interesting aspects. Um, so one, you're dead right. This whole business of starting a business and running a business includes building a whole set of skills that potentially you, d that you don't have. But the other, uh, in addition to the skills that you have associated with, for example, business savvy or, you know, things that are nothing to do with the idea or the product or the core skill set that you, that you bring to it, the other set of skills you need are, uh, for want of a better term, coping skills, right? And being able to th thrive amid that ambiguity. Um, you know, one of the really interesting aspects of, you know, of what we're doing is we're we're building a product to allow people to thrive in the ambiguity um, and a set of services that allow that to happen. And we're doing so while we ourselves live in something that is about as ambiguous as you get, namely, namely starting up a new business in a new domain, 
where you're trying to figure out who your customers are, where you're trying to figure out um, who's going to like what you have the most and want to use what you have the most. You're trying to figure out price points. You're trying to do uh, all of these things and be productive through it and ride the emotional roller coaster that is, uh, that is a startup. So um, those th- it's, it's really interesting how those, our lived experience, our current lived experience, closely maps uh, some of the people that need our solution. The most. You know, I want to stay on this for a second because it, uh, it, in some ways, this startup culture that's emerged and really caught fire over the past five, 10 years is now almost a, a metaphor for life in general, if you like. So if you think about what the definition, the pure definition of a startup, and I'm paraphrasing, so I might get this not word for word, but it's an organization that operates in a state of extreme uncertainty. That's it. That's the definition. <laughs> so that's pretty much how all of us are living now, right? We're, we're moving so fast as a, as a species, you know, we're kind of always in a state of uncertainty because tomorrow is new and it's very different than than today and it's very different than yesterday and so that is basically a state of extreme uncertainty that almost every human's in why is it so difficult for us to live in that ambiguity well there's a bunch of reasons but one of one of them is that we're just not wired to do it right um if you think about this from the uh from all the way back in terms of of you know human existence um certainty uh, was associated with stability and uncertainty was associated with threat. So at a time when, you know, something, let's say, for example, food is not plentiful, it's a period of uncertainty, right? Are you, where are you going to get your next meal from? Right? We're wired as human beings to find that to be a stressful event and a thing that, we, uh, that could, should cause us a fight or a flight response, right? Um, an unexpected bear coming around, <laughs> coming around the corner is an uncertain, unexpected event. And it's something that we are wired as human beings to, to be deeply uncomfortable with. And then if you think about it from the perspective of children, right, what do we do in order to be able to create, um, to be able to create a sense of stability in our child's lives? We create structure. We put structure into our lives. So a certain bedtime, like a bedtime story, for example, mealtime at a certain place, right? You try to create these routines, these structures that are associated with a feeling of well-being and comfort and things of that, uh, things of that nature. So it's kind of hardwired in us that structure, certainty, stability is a comfortable place. And the inverse of that is an uncomfortable place. So we shouldn't feel bad as human beings if we find that to be difficult. Um, There are certain human beings, obviously, that are more comfortable and more able to deal with that period of uncertainty, but it is a natural, normal human response to feel uncomfortable in that. And so what we found as an organization is that it's not about like completely structured or completely unstructured, right? It's not about consistent routine and tasks versus total ambiguity. But what it's about really is putting just enough structure, just enough certainty into our lives in order to allow us to do, uh, to do our best work. Um, and so that can be as simple as, for example, making sure that as an individual, you go to bed at around about the same time every day and get up at around about the same time every day. Or as an individual, you have a 
repeatable morning routine. These types of things can can help restore just enough structure to create enough level of comfort to allow us to be able to do our best work. I was going to say, like my morning routine has been very hard to set post having a you know a job where I had to go into an office, right? Because getting to that office on time was what drove my morning routine, right? Not wanting to be late. Mm-hmm. When I have nowhere to go mm-hmm. and the work starts whenever I want to start, it's very hard to start working for me. And I'm like, all right, mm-hmm. I've had two cups of coffee. I've been staring at my phone for 20 minutes. I should probably start work now. And I've noticed like I've had to give myself like either a morning meeting or something to focus my attention on. And, but it took a while to figure that out. You're tapping into a common theme. One of the, uh, uh, one of the things that we found with employees will, will tell us in confidence, generally in confidence, that when we ask them, when do you start work? And they go, well, I look and see when my first meeting is. And then I start about 10 minutes before that. <laughs> so if their first meeting is like two in the afternoon, they get nothing done until two in the afternoon. So these are the types of things that um, are very, very common human characteristics. And so uh, that's part of the stuff that we work on with people to say, okay, you're behaving in a very normal way. Um, here are the things that you can do to be able to, uh, to get around those very normal, very natural uh, things that are very common to people like you. There's a, there's a word that I want us to start using, and that is skill. Uh, these are skills, and they're skills that most of us lack. Um, and because to Paul's point, we haven't developed over thousands and thousands of years, right? And so all this has happened so quickly, we almost haven't had a chance to revisit the skills that are necessary for us to truly thrive in, in the modern world, right? Because the modern world changed so fast. Uh, but that's what we're describing. So as, as Jesse, you're talking about the morning routine, that's a skill. Uh, putting structure into your day and repeatable process, that's a skill. And what we need to do is we need to effectively train <laughs> billions of people on developing this set of skills that will enable them to create their own personal structure, not adopting somebody else's structure, somebody else's idea of structure, but how to truly develop their own structure when all the structure around them has eroded. There's a billion people today who do unstructured, ambiguous work, and that number is going to double over the course of the next five to eight years. Um, and so that's where those, those numbers that Ryan is talking about comes from. I mean, the reality is if you don't have the skills to do this kind of work, then your employment options are going to be severely limited. Um, and the most interesting thing that we've found about it is that you might make an assumption that people who've risen up in organizations or become more senior in terms of their roles inside organizations intrinsically have these skills. No, nope. that's not true, right? So we have people that we've worked with that are a C level or C level minus one, and they're struggling with this stuff just as much as anything else because it's a natural set of human traits and they haven't learned the set of skills in order to be able to cope with it. They're getting, they're getting by and doing well despite the fact that they don't have those skills rather than because they have those skills. Yeah, I think that's interesting because uh, my, my daily schedule is a little more structured than Jesse's. But similarly, I work on you know, large projects where I often have a lot of autonomy. They're you know, large in scope over a long period of time. And I generally struggle to make meaningful progress until I have pressure to it, either pressure of a deadline, uh, pressure of, you know, someone, you know, additional scrutiny or something like that. So even though I have some structure in my daily schedule, 
my work is still often very unstructured and it makes it difficult for me to make progress sometimes. For our our listeners, you know, we normally we are talking to people who are like out in the field trying to do something specific to make the world better, right? But all of those people need these skills and probably don't have them. And so this is a much more like ephemeral pot for good conversation about how do we make it so everyone can do the most amount of good in a day they can do. You know, that's, that's an interesting point too. And I think back to Paul, I know we haven't talked about this in a while, but when we were first imagining Billion Minds, um, we were working uh, in the arena of clinical research. Um, specifically, we were at Microsoft and we were focused on building technology solutions that would effectively speed up clinical research to get life-saving therapies to the people that need them. And what that meant for us is our day-to-day had us working with a lot of uh, altruistic people in organizations, um, nonprofits, patient advocacy groups, consortia, right? Um, And what's very interesting for us is we felt like they were trying to do incredibly important work, uh, incredibly altruistic, you know, philanthropic work um, with a hand tied behind their back. Um, it's hard enough to build those organizations that are around, you know, missions that are mission driven uh, and getting funding for them, getting support for them, things like that. But then not having a set of skills that helps you to manage these things more effectively is, is makes it even doubly challenging. And so that was something that we observe very clearly is that even, you know, some organizations, for-profit organizations that have invested in, um, in tools and process and technology and things like that, um, at least have a better shot. Um, but when you look at the people that are doing the most good or, uh, or at least trying to do the most good at, at a global scale, um, they're all, they're usually less armed than most. And Jesse, I think actually there's, there's possibly even a more direct connection um, to the idea, if you like, of making the world a better place. This, um, this part of the genesis of this idea came from the changes, the societal changes that are happening in the world right now. And specifically um, how technology is aiding and abetting those societal changes. So when you think about the convergence of, let's say, three specific technologies, robotics, artificial intelligence, and automation. As those three technologies converge, where we're going to end up, basically, is our, our opinion is anyway, where we're going to end up is a point where a very large proportion of the work that exists today, of the meaningful work that exists today, um, will become irrelevant because it will be replaced by uh, will be replaced by technology, and so what's going to be left is are the types of roles that really depend upon really classic human traits. So human ingenuity, uh, the ability to think counterintuitively, for example, creative thinking, right? All of these types of things, uh, creative disagreements, for example. All of those different things are going to become much, much, much more important in the workplace and beyond um, than they are today. And so there is a 
there's a, a reason to do this type of work. And the reason is basically to help arm humans with the right skills that they need in order to be able to work in that environment and be their best human selves in that environment. The other thing that this is very related to is the, the downside, the negative side to people being unable to, to make the changes that we've, that we've talked about, to people being, finding it difficult to cope. On the podcast here, we've been talking about it in kind of like a, like a mundane, uh, well, I don't get a meeting started until this time of day, or I don't get, I'm not able to be able to be you know, quite as effective or, or productive as I, I would like to be. But for many of the people that we interviewed, we did about 300 interviews before we actually officially formed the company. And many of those people that we interviewed, it was way, way more serious than that, right? It was uh, significant mental health crises. It was uh, relationships breaking down. It was all kinds of things that could be tied back to this merging of, of work and the rest of our lives. There's 120,000 people in the U.S. alone that die from ailments that are associated directly with workplace-related stress. And actually, that number predates the pandemic. So there's probably a lot more uh, in, uh, in the pandemic world. So we tend to think of this as, um, as, yes, a set of skills that businesses will benefit from and individuals will benefit from, and it'll help them make their lives a little bit better. But for many, um, it is a uh, their individual experience of a much broader and bigger societal problem that we're going after. Well, I think like you think about a problem like poverty, right? Like a, mm-hmm. an AI program and automation is not going to solve poverty. But what it, what it will yep. do is allow people who are trying to fix poverty, uh, give them the abilities to focus more on the issues at hand versus like how to organize it or how to keep track of things or how to uh, not not balance. What's the word we're using? Uh, integrate, 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 integrate their work with their life. Because uh, especially social justice work, it you're doing it because you care about it, which means mm-hmm. that passion doesn't turn off ever. And so it is very hard to stop Correct. working and to uh, feel okay taking money for doing said job. Mm-hmm. And you can be more susceptible to burnout precisely because of that, right? These same forces that some that often lead founders to burnout are the same forces that often lead people that are the most mission-driven to to burn out. Because in in part, and several of the people that we've worked with have have gone through this exact issue, it almost feels bad, right? I mean, even if you you wanted to switch off, it's like, well, I can't switch off. People are dying. You know, I can't switch off. People are starving, right? And so not really recognizing that, you know, as Ariana Huffington uh, likes to put it, that um, in the human operating system, downtime is a feature, not a bug. They're not really kind of recognizing that statement and that in order to be their best selves, in order to be able to really solve these problems, either individually or collectively, then they have to be sufficiently rested. They have to understand how to switch off. They have to understand how to re-engage most effectively, just as athletes, competitive athletes, understand that they're not going to be able to roll up to the Olympics and, uh, and, you know, just by basically working out for 16 hours a day and not getting any sleep. If they do that, they're not going to roll up to the Olympics and become an Olympic gold medalist, right? They understand that connection between um, creating the appropriate level of 
integration with the daily work they do and the rest of their lives, many of us have lost that ability or just don't have that set of skills. So there is a, there, there is a close tie-in uh, to the passion that you feel for the work that you do with the likelihood that it may end up burning you out. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about people, right? People doing work, uh, people working in companies, people starting companies. Isn't a part of this issue the companies themselves? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, for, uh, and for so many reasons, right? Ryan touched on, uh, on one aspect of it already, which is that the challenge and the luxury that actually companies have been able to have for the longest period of time before this merging happened between these two things is that the company could just think of the person as the thing that showed up at work, right? As in you show up for the eight hours a day you're at work, you're an employee. And then when you leave, you're not an employee and we don't, uh, and, <laughs> and that's not our problem, right? And now when these two things have basically merged together, there is, um, sure, there's a responsibility of the human to take care of themselves. There's a responsibility of the human to show up and be their best selves. But then if the company wants to be relevant, there is a responsibility for the company to provide the best employee experience. And there's a responsibility for the company to create the conditions in which the human can be their best self. And those conditions extend beyond a fictional you know, time period where the, where the company is working. So we like to say the company, you've got a choice really as a company. You can either go totally old school and say, all right, everybody, you're here from nine and you're here to five, uh, you're here to five and then everybody switch off and don't you know, switch off your phones and, and don't communicate with us or any of that kind of stuff. And you could, be, you could at least in theory be old school and some people will come to your company precisely because of that. Or you can be new school, but then if you are, then now you have part of the responsibility for the welfare of your employees. And some people like to say that, that uh, no, it shouldn't be the responsibility of the, uh, of the company. It's down to the individuals and everybody should grow up and all these millennials should stop complaining and all that kind of stuff. But we think that's, that's sort of kind of an academic argument because if the result of that opinion and the result of that behavior is everybody leaves and goes somewhere else, then you're having that argument in a, <laughs> in a world that doesn't comport with reality. Yeah, I was going to say the, 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 the balance of power has shifted slightly back towards workers uh, where it should have been the entire time. Anyway, just bringing in my own liberal <laughs> uh, philosophy here. But people have options now and companies that handle those options better, that handle this thing that we're talking about better, I think will succeed, hopefully. Why do people leave their jobs? Because they can. Well, well, and and something that I think is interesting um, that uh, I had never really thought of, this is something that came from a mentor at work, was that competition for talent isn't just between companies, between organizations. It's also within an organization. So if you are the group that is better at creating a culture for your employees, valuing your, your employees, not only are you going to keep people longer, but people elsewhere in the organization is, are going to want to come work for you rather than them leave you to work somewhere else. So it's almost as important to compete against your peers as it is with other organizations as employees become more and more scarce. Yeah, that's, I, I think you're right. And I, I might even throw in there, there might be even another one that we could add to it, uh, which 
it's crazy that it's even considered an option. I shouldn't say crazy. It's it's very intriguing that it's considered an option in today's world, which is just doing nothing. I mean, if you think about it, we if you look at the Great Resignation, um, and Paul, you might have the statistics more to mind than than I do at the moment, but when you look at the volume of people who have resigned, there's a great percentage of them that resign without a new job in mind. And so you're so almost organizations, so whether it's uh, different organizations, Chris, or, or internal organizations, um, they're competing, but they're also competing with uh, an alternative reality, <laughs> which is that you're competing with what does it all mean? It, it kind of uh, positions that people are in right now, uh, and and spirituality and stuff like that. That's uh, I mean I don't think that anybody saw that coming. That that's in talent development, recruitment, things like that. Yeah, the stats on it are interesting. The overall size of the civilian workforce, in other words, non-military, um, despite all of this, you know number of people resigning, about 4 million people resigning month on month for what close to a year now. Um, despite that, the number of people that are actually in the workforce as civilians has actually remained fairly static. But that itself reveal is behind that. There's a whole bunch of complexity that's underneath it. So first off, the size of the workforce, at least in theory, due to demographics and so on, should tick up anyway. Um, and hasn't really been ticking up at all, has been remaining fairly static. But also what's super interesting is that you've seen people move in and out of what one could call, if you like, semi-retirement. So there's people that have been retired who are coming back into the workforce. There are people that are uh, in the workforce that have opted out of the workforce. And all of that points to what Ryan's talking about here, which is you know what we sometimes refer to as a not a great resignation as such, but a great reevaluation and a great reshuffle as people are finding their own spot inside this thing. And at times of great societal change, which there's obviously been during the course of this pandemic, that typically leads to come back to sort of natural human motivation. It, it typically leads to a great deal of personal introspection. So what's my role as the world is changing around me? And that's when people tend to make more dramatic changes in their life. Anytime we talk about these type of uh, studies of human behavior and interaction, I'm always interested in intersectionality. So how this type of behavior and program intersects with different generations, different races, different genders, things like that. Have you noticed any differences? Or are there any sort of universal themes you see across all groups? So we've seen some things and some things are really interesting. So for example, the people that are the most, that resonate the most with the challenges that we're facing here, they tend to be a little bit associated with certain demographics. So for example, as people are moving into the workforce, as they're um, moving out of say their school experience into their college experience, and then out of the college experience into the workforce, that's a period of significant transition. So that period, that period of like, moving into the workforce and then basically going through that adjustment as they kind of come out of college and go into the workforce, a very different workforce than their parents experienced or potentially even their older siblings experience. Often a workforce that doesn't include much face-to-face -face human interaction and that rapid assembly of soft skills that you normally get when you're sitting in an office with a bunch of, you know, gnarled veterans. 
that you've never really hung out with before. That's gone. And as a result of that, that's very challenging uh, for people that are coming into the workforce. We often think, oh, yeah, they'll be fine because they're used to all this digital technology and all that kind of stuff. But in reality, what they're missing is that kind of human, uh, that human dimension. And then as you go from there into, I would say, like later stage career people, so people who are maybe in the late 40s, early 50s, as it were, they've got their own set of complications. And it comes back to the point that Ryan was making earlier, which is the relationship between the work and the non-work environment. Those people typically, their work has got a bit more complicated. They've got, they've got new sets of responsibilities. Maybe as they've gone up in the organization, the work has become a bit more ambiguous, but also often a ton of complexity in their non-work life. So they've got kids themselves that are, in, that are in college or just about to go into college, right? They've got parents potentially who are suffering some health issues or something along those lines. And they're having to deal with, those, with the specific challenges and balance those challenges against the interests of, uh, of their work life. And so we think of it, so there are obviously some demographic currents that, t- that tend to affect that. But then if you start to think about that in terms of male versus female dynamics, right, obviously, uh, in the case of, of, of women, they often have a significant changes that happen in their personal life that have to be balanced against uh, the needs of their career. So they may move in or out of the workforce as they're having children or something along those lines. And so that's the, if you like, the added complication that women tend to, often tend to have in the workforce even as we're moving into a societal world where there's more co-parenting and all that kind of stuff, that burden tends to fall more on women than on men. So it's really associated with when those, with when those transformational changes happen in people's lives, either in their work life or in their non-work life. And that's when they tend to face the, the, the biggest challenges to try to adapt to those new changes. It could be big, like the ones we've just been talking about, or it could be really simple. Like I took a new job across town and now I need to drop off the, my two kids at their old school before I can get to work. And I can't get to work at nine o'clock in the morning. And now I have to get to work at five past nine. And my coworkers keep wondering why I'm t- turning up five minutes late and think I'm lazy. That's a, that's a microcosm thing uh, that doesn't seem as dramatic as some of those other things that we're talking about, but can be very, very impactful for the, uh, for the individual. And Chris, you mentioned the word uh, universality, uh, which I think is interesting. And I want to hit that very quickly in in two unique ways, because I know you guys, the startup game, universality for an entrepreneur can be a a, a gift and a curse. A gift in that it's great to think like your total addressable market is the whole world, but that there's a there's the the byproduct of that too, which is really tough to nail your ICP. So through a through a, a business lens, um, the universality is uh, is an interesting is an interesting dilemma if you like to manage. The other thing is um, one thing that we do see universality across all demographics, across all psychographic characteristics for the most part is is the problem. It's nuts that you know, a hundred out of a hundred people that we talk to are like, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's tough. <laughs> it's tough to get through my day. I mean, that's, if you think of, if you stop to think about that, that's pretty crazy. It's like, I mean, go, t- go outside and just somebody off the street, just walking down the street and grab them and ask them how their day is going. They're probably like, yikes, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's gonna be tough to get through it all. The HBR article, Beyond Burned Out, 
came out, which um, and and we read through that, and it's talking about how. I mean, the stats were outrageous. I mean, 84% people are, are saying that they can't manage their, their work and life integration and et cetera. I'm, I'm paraphrasing some kind of using our nomenclature, but that should be on a billboard, <laughs> you know, not tucked away in some gated content on a site. I mean, that's, that's crazy. Everybody should, that should be required reading. Um, uh, so like the, the problem, there's a universality to the problem. And then briefly on the solution side, one thing that Paul and I have realized over the course of probably the last 18 months is you can't really do anything until you solve the, the problem of the day. Uh, and that might seem very simple, maybe even a little puerile to just think about just a, just a day when, you know, what about what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, thinking big, uh, those are all very important things. But if you can't get through your day, you're not getting to any of that stuff. You know, you're not in the right mindset. If you can't switch off at the end of the day and get some rest, if you can't get some exercise, if you can't uh, just come, if you can't get over this anxiety, this low level anxiety that seems to just be pervasive across everybody and every day, forget about those big, those big goals. <laughs> so that's why we've, we've kind of come to, we got to solve that first. That's got to be, that's got to be job one. And I got to say when, you know, one of the, thoughts that crossed our mind when we were two people who came from Microsoft and, you know, both of us have worked in tech for most of our entire lives. It's kind of scary to think that given all of the promise of technology, given all of the, all of the things that, that have been told to, uh, to us as a, as a population that everything's going to become so easy and everything's going to be become, you know, life is just going to be so much better. You know, like I used to say better living through chemistry is like better living through technology. Right. And where have we got ourselves to where after all of these waves upon waves upon waves of development of technology, that the most important part of the equation, the human being is collectively in society suffering from basically low level anxiety. That's, that's kind of odd, right? I mean, technology was supposed to fix this stuff. And in reality, the, the people that have been left behind have been the people, right? It's, it's, it's the human beings in the equation that have been left behind in this, in this picture, which is actually why we went from the idea of, all right, we're going to build a cool app that's going to solve all of this stuff to we're going to create an experience that includes technology, for which in technology is actually an integral part, but which has one mission, which is to look after the human being in the equation and to give the human being the practical tools and the practical skills that they need to thrive in this new world. And that became our singular focus for that, for that exact reason. I used to believe that technology was supposed to make our lives easier and better. And then I ran into what I think is the perfect example of how technology does not make our lives easier. And that is the printer. <laughs> mm -hmm. If printers just worked, <laughs> our lives would be better. Yeah. They don't. I'm envisioning office yeah. space yeah. right now. Yeah, right? <laughs> On that topic, has it ever occurred to you that like, I don't know if it has, but like all of these things that we used to use um, are so much more clunky than they were even like five years or 10 years ago, right? If I used to want to watch a channel on TV, 
I'd pop my, <laughs> I'd turn my TV on. I'm going to sound like <laughs> no, an old no, granddad. You're, you're right. You're care. right about this. Right. I'd turn my TV on. And then one second later, I'd be watching the channel mm-hmm. I want to watch. Now I turn on my fire TV and it takes, I don't know, like 15, 20 seconds to warm up. Like my old valve TV took, took, took like 20 seconds to warm up or a minute to warm up. Right. After it's in quotes warmed up and it's connected to the internet. Then I need to go into whatever app my channels are on. Then I need to scroll through those to find what channels they are. Then I need to know another X number of seconds. I timed this the other day. It like takes five minutes to find the channel you want to watch on TV. <laughs> Theoretically, that's improvement. You know, it's very, it's very odd. We were promised at the, the cord cutting age was to access the things we mm-hmm. want when we wanted them. What happened was the companies yeah. that had the stuff we wanted all started their own apps and none of those apps work uh-huh. well. But there's no competition, right? Uh-huh. No one can make a Disney Plus <laughs> competitor. I'm watching the Olympics on the Peacock app, which first of all, terrible name. Uh, second of all, like the yeah. UI is awful. But like we have, you have no choice. And yeah. yep. uh, it's, it's, it's infuriating, right? Like things should become easier and they don't. Yeah. And so that, yeah. And so that broader theme is actually, I mean, it's an underpinning to what we do, but it really is that broader theme that technology is leaving the humans behind. We're second, we're secondary, right? And and we shouldn't. Technology seems to have a habit of forgetting the, the easy problems we've already solved while trying to solve bigger problems. You know, you see a lot recently on, on Tesla's about the doors freezing, right? Being able to open a car uh-huh. door is something that we've had solved since the beginning of having cars. We know how and to suddenly, do that. Suddenly we've yeah. created yeah. technology that's so amazing that now we can't do the simplest thing of opening a car door. Yeah, and if we're going to riff on, both Ryan and I are Model 3 owners, so we, so, we, <laughs> so we feel this pain and it is interesting. It's fascinating what, what people will put up with, with regard to that. Like, for example, if we want to travel, you know, we're both here in Tulsa now, right? If we want to travel to Dallas, for example, yes, we can charge our cars and accomplish it. Yes, we can go and recharge supercharger stations. But how long is it going to take us to get there versus how long would it take us with the, with the gas vehicle that it's replacing? Now, it's wonderful that we're shifting, shifting to electric cars. But the very fact that the penalty that you pay as a, as a human being is two, three hours more and driving out of your way 60, 70 miles in order to be able to find the location to charge it. That's, again, an indication that like, as a respon- there's a responsibility for all tech companies, including ours, to really try and put the human being front and center of the experience again, to your point where like, we should care about whether a human being can open a car door. We should care about whether a human being has to wait, you know, two or three more hours to complete the same trip that they would complete using a, using a gas car. So this is not to diss on these companies that are doing amazing work to, to transform our societal experience, but it is a reminder that technology must make human beings at the center. And if they, and they consistently, a lot of technology companies consistently have not. And that's a very, it's a very important thing for us to think about as we move into the next age, as we start to think about what the role of humans is alongside robotics, automation, and AI. Yeah, I mean, like the, the fact that like Tesla can spend a lot of time programming like a, a Christmas light show that you can download and then have your car do, but then 
which, which is, is cool. cool. But like, maybe they should be focusing yeah. on making sure the doors always open when you want them to open. Yeah. And did you know, by the way, that in the Tesla, there's a super cool uh, feature where if you tap the, uh, the in right indicator four times, you end up with a Christopher Walken, more cowbell <laughs> experience that goes on. That's great. Car. Does the, I mean, do the doors that's open? That's fun. <laughs> yeah. Like, so, like I was, I was looking into getting a smart lock and all the reviews are uh, like, well, it works 50% of the time. It's a lock. We have mastered lock technology. It should open mm-hmm. every time I want it to open. 100% yeah. of the time. It yeah, works right. 100% <laughs> of the time to quote from uh, the yeah. movie. <laughs> um, so I feel like I, uh, this, I think this is the last big question we ask um, is, yeah. so for people who don't have access to Billion Minds yet, what is like one tip or five tips or whatever, however many tips you can come up, come up with that you can uh, tell people to you know, make this slightly better. Well, the first thing is, yes, listen, I, but. I, I, have, I, have tried like, I, I literally have the little Calendly but. link up to like get a 15 minute call with somebody. Yeah. It might be with one, one of you. I have no idea. Okay. Yeah. So let's, uh, so let's make sure that people do that. But in the absence, <laughs> but in the absence of that, I would, I would definitely say that from my perspective, there's a reevaluation. We're talking a lot about the great reevaluation. There's an individual re- reevaluation that, 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 people need to do and set, they need to think about what the core of being effective is. And it translates basically down to three things that need to be considered to be equally important. So the first aspect of it is having an organizational structure for the work that you do, right? That organizational structure is largely gone in a lot of our work. So you need to create your own organizational structure for the work that you do. That could be as simple as if you're not using technology, it could be as simple as taking all the five different to-do lists and merging them into one or whatever it would happen to be, right? But have that core organizational structure. The second thing is focused, and we talked about this a little bit, about having a repeatable method. So it does make a difference if you get up at the same time every day. It does make a difference if you go to bed at the same time every day. Now, we're not saying you should get up at four, right? If you're a, if you're a night owl, getting up at four is going to be a lousy experience. Right. So it's about having something that is repeatable and that works for you. And then the uh, and then the third element is uh, we often call it ability to execute. Um, You can think of it as well as well-being, if you like. But it's basically putting in the appropriate things that you need to in order to be able to allow you to accomplish those other two things. So that for most people at its core, it translates to rest, nutrition, movement, things like that. That are, that are basic physical things and then looking after those other aspects of your life that could be spiritual, financial, emotional, well-being, those types of things that are necessary in order to be able to allow yourself to execute. So um, those, what we strongly suggest as a starting point for, uh, for people is take a step back and then start to think about how well you do across those three different dimensions and then start to put in a, a place a method that works for you in order to be able to function well across those three different dimensions. Um, Personal effectiveness is personal. So just simply saying, okay, zero inbox works for my neighbor, so it's going to work for me is irrelevant, right? You are a human, you're a biological system. You're a biological, you know, human being. Certain things are going to work well for you and they're not going to work well for your neighbor. So it's really about finding what does work for you. Um, and then helping you, uh, and then dear helping God, you that uh, listeners, Chris just showed us it's his like, phone yeah, email it. box. It's over 40,000. I just had a little heart attack. So 
Yeah. And so Chris is not no. a zero inbox just, person. Just if mark you tell Chris to be a zero inbox case. person, he's like, an infinity. It will person. it will never <sighs> ever work for Chris. So it's about finding what's right for Chris. And so that's why actually we structured the program in the way that we did to allow people to understand the overall habits of really effective people. And then actually to be able to, to then take that and define what makes them personally effective. Um, and so that's at a high level, that's what we would suggest that where we suggest people stop. Uh, Chris, sh- uh, show your phone again. I'm going to add, add a little marker so I can clip that as a video <laughs> thing. And like we can all make our shocked face at your emails again. Almost 50,000. All there right. Wow. Yeah. Just mark all on red. Like Listen, uh, all red. Like you're I have, never gonna I go. have a, a, a Gmail account that is completely compromised by spam. And every once in a while I get a wild hair and just delete tens of thousands of emails at once. I just haven't done it in a while. Um, but as, as we're getting close to uh, wrapping up, if people listen to this and they're really interested, how can they connect with you? How can they learn more? How can they potentially, um, you know, bring you into their organization? So there's a couple of, uh, so there's a couple of different ways for organizations that are interested in, uh, that are interested in this. People can go simply to the billionminds.com website. Actually, if they want to just go to Rhett, they go billionminds.com forward slash learn more, and they can schedule a, a, a conversation with us to, uh, to talk about what will work for, uh, for their organization. We are just experimenting, actually, with an, uh, with an individual program as well. So if there are individuals that want to go through this as well, they can do so. They can visit uh, a site called effectiveness.me and they can get started. We predominantly work with organizations, but we have taken the, if you like, the best learnings that we've got from, uh, from those organizations and are trialing this individual program as well. So uh, both of those are options for people. Also, also your podcast. Absolutely. Oh, thank you for You're mentioning welcome. that. Yeah. So. We have a podcast which is called Way Too Busy, and go check that out. And actually, we just dropped the first episode of uh, of season two. Feel free to go and uh, go and check that out. We basically the way the podcast works is we spend uh, we kind of alternate between episodes. We have one where we kind of go into these uh, themes in a little bit more detail um, and discuss them, and then uh, every second episode, generally or so, we try to um, to have a guest who's kind of a thought leader in the space and kind of uh, go into it that way. Very cool. And that's on your, on your website, billionminds.com slash podcast. So, yeah. well, uh, Paul, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. This was, this was great. I'm still stressed and a little anxious, but I feel like there is hope <laughs> in the future. So, um, so I appreciate well, it. You need a little virtual yes, hug. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, just uh, one of the things that we say very commonly is that if you feel the way you just described, Jesse, you are actually the normal one. <laughs> Great. (laughs) (laughs) Yay, I guess. Have you ever been described as normal before? No, I have not. Yeah, Jesse, it was all our Um, teachers that were wrong, not us. Thank you all for listening to our episode with Paul and Ryan from Billion Minds. Please check out their website, billionminds.com, and subscribe and download their podcast, Way Too Busy. Speaking of podcasts, please follow Pod for Good on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. As we say every once in a while when we remember that if you leave us a review, we will read it on air. So Tulsa, get it done. Broken Arrow, you know what you did. Be safe out there. <laughs>